absolutely committed to abolishing the 45 pence tax rate for the wealthiest people in the country. Yes. That was Liz Truss, less than 24 hours before the most embarrassing U-turn in recent political history. Yes, the Conservatives are bound to pressure from all sides and are no longer abolishing the top rate of tax. We'll have all the latest developments and analysis on tonight's show. And I'm joined this evening by Aaron Bastani. How are you doing? Michael, I'm doing very well. Very restorative weekend. We get these uh, occasions very rarely in life, Michael, where everything the Tories touch goes badly. So... I wouldn't rather be anywhere else than uh, discussing that with you tonight. I was having a conversation about this on the weekend. I was sort of saying it's nice to see it all go, you know, uh, as you say, everything's turning to the shit, shit for the Conservative Party. The response I got was also there is, you know, serious worries here. As we're going to talk about people's benefits are potentially not going to rise in line with inflation. We'll talk about the details later. But I suppose my response, the silver lining is that, you know, for the whole first five years, austerity, the first 10 years of austerity, really, it was really screwing over, say, like the bottom third of the population. And everyone else thought, oh, this is great. The Tories are competent. So there are some benefits to the fact that Tory policy is now screwing over everyone at the same time, because then we can get them out in a year's time. When they, when they target their um, evil can actually be more, more depressing than when they sort of sprinkle it around universally. Also on tonight's show, I'll be speaking to Joanna Ramiro live from Brazil on the first round of the presidential election there. The government's plan for unfunded tax cuts for the rich spooked the markets, outraged the public and caused cold feet even within the Conservative Party. And after a weekend of Liz Truss defending the decision, this morning Kwasi Kwarteng dumped it. He explained the U-turn on the Today programme. My view was that the 45p rate was a distraction from that. We Why wasn't it the Prime Minister's view yesterday? We had those conversations uh, with the Prime Minister I had uh, over the weekend. I, we spoke yesterday. Uh, and also, I mean, we get it. I get it. I saw the reaction. I saw the, the focus, the intense focus on that particular measure. Are you saying there wasn't a reaction on Saturday? No, there was, but we, we so were So why absorbing. didn't you listen then? No, no, we were absorbing the, the, the reaction and we were thinking, what are we going to do? Chancellor, it's, it's, it's no use sitting here saying, oh, well, of course we've listened. For two weeks, you have done the opposite of listening. So it was about nine Every days. single day after those, after your budget, you have said, we're sticking to the plan. We're not budging. We're not listening to the people who tell us it's a mistake. We didn't say we weren't listening. We were listening and we were digesting what people were saying. And then as a consequence of that, we've decided, I've decided that we're not going to proceed with the abolition of the rate. You can't say you've been listening when you've been ignoring people for two weeks. Nine days, actually. That's why he gets paid the big bucks. Of course, the U-turn isn't so much because Truss and Kwarteng finally listened to the public, but because it became clear enough Tory MPs were willing to vote down his mini-budget. Enough of them sort of led by Michael Gove. The pound rallied slightly after the U-turn, but when it comes to unfunded tax cuts, the vast majority still do remain in place. This was the reaction from Paul Johnson from the Institute for Fiscal Studies. So he said, The direct impact of the government's U-turn on the abolition of the additional 45p rate of income tax is of limited fiscal significance. At a medium-run cost of around £2 billion a year, it represented only a small fraction of the Chancellor's mini-budget announcements. His £45 billion package of tax cuts has now become a £43 billion package, a rounding error in the context of the public finances. The Resolution Foundation have also done the maths and showed that the mini-budget remains regressive even without the abolition of the top rate. So this is their updated analysis. It shows that as a result of the mini-budget, even after the U-turn, the richest 5% of the population will be £3,500 better off. The poorest 5% barely benefit at all. And the government is still being clear that those who'll pay for the tax cuts 
are the poorest in society. This is Kwarteng on the Today programme again. Will it mean spending cuts? Will there be a new era of austerity? So, as I've said, you'll see what our spending plans are in the medium-term fiscal plan. Understand. And I'm not oh, going to be drawn, I'm not going to be, I'm not not going to be drawn to into that. I'm not going to be drawn into not that. Not wanting you to be drawn. But there are 51 days to wait. And what we discovered is it can take five hours for the markets to react. The markets are listening to what you're saying, and they're listening now. Will you curb spending, or will you drop your tax plans in order to make the sums add up, which they currently don't? So all I've said about spending so far, and there'll be more details in the medium-term fiscal plan, is that we're sticking to the comprehensive spending review of of 2021, uh, and we're very committed to that. And that, that's, that's all I'm prepared to say about spending. Understood. Just so I understand what that means for listeners, that means you will not spend more to compensate government departments for soaring inflation. So what that means is this right, is that government departments will have to find about £18 billion that is almost the entire budget of the local government department. It's almost half the defence budget that money will have to be found in savings because you will not increase public spending. So with the CSR, uh, as you as you know, that was set in 2021. Forgive me, the comprehensive spending. The comprehensive spending review. And we don't know where inflation will be in 2023, but I think it's a, a matter of good practice and really important that we stick within the envelope of the CSR. And I've repeated that uh, all, for the last uh, couple of weeks. So Kwarteng was attempting a really dishonest move there, saying we're not going to actively cut public services. What we're going to do is keep to the agreement, keep to the comprehensive spending plan that was made by the previous government. That's when Rishi Sunak was Chancellor. Nick Robinson correctly says, but that was before we knew there was going to be 10% inflation. So if you keep to the sums from that spending review, then you are giving a really significant real terms cut to every department. It's going to be terrible for all public services, going to be terrible for people on benefits. It's really, really grim, actually. Of course, cuts didn't make it into Kwarteng's conference speech, and this was the only allusion to his U-turn. I know the plan put forward only 10 year, uh, days ago has caused a little turbulence. I get it. I get it. Uh, we are listening and have listened. And now I want to focus on delivering the major parts of our growth package. I get it. We get it. My favourite meme of the day was the comparisons um, to the Roy family from succession, they got found to have had some real terrible sexual harassment cover-ups in their company. Then they they go and stand in front of the staff and say, we get it. And they've got, uh, they're easy, they even use the same colour scheme as the Conservatives. If you, if you watch succession, you'll know what I mean. If not, you'll be very confused right now. Aaron, um, how significant is this U-turn? Well, firstly, Michael, the whole, the whole thing of we get it, I just find so amusing. You know, this is not a minor boo-boo made by a, a brand social media intern where they've made a, you know, a, a mildly sexist joke. This is somebody who almost made pension funds right across the United Kingdom insolvent, who was looking at, for the first time, the pound going below the dollar. We got pretty close. So in terms of its uh, importance as a U-turn, I mean, look, if they hadn't U-turned, it was a, it was a, their credibility is tanked regardless, Michael. What I want to know is now, what are the conversations between the likes of the IEA, the Taxpayers Alliance, all these crazy Tufton Street right-wing think tanks, which clearly had the ear of Kwarteng and Liz Truss before, clearly Kwarteng couldn't say no to them. He, he literally had an inability to say, no, that's a bad idea. I'm an elected politician. 
I, I can't give you everything you want because that would make me deeply unpopular. He didn't seem to appreciate that. I wonder if he's learned that. I mean, I don't know. They do seem remarkably bad, stupid uh, politicians, both Kwarteng and Truss. The tone there, I thought, was just ridiculous. You're the chance of the Exchequer. Completely inappropriate, the way he was mocking what had just happened, entirely because of him. And I suppose if you're saying we want to execute on this massive sweeping program of reform, let's not talk about, by the way, this cornerstone thing, which we were saying defines who we are as politicians. Well, you were just saying this is, this is a totemic thing, reducing tax on wealth creators, but now you don't want to do it. So do you still believe that it's a good thing to do or not? I think that, again, is a really central question that should be posed to them. Because you think it's a good policy, that it's actually in the national interest. Well, why isn't it being pursued? And you're not just pursuing it because of the sort of political media reaction. Well, again, how interested are you in the sort of long-term interest of this country? Super strange. But Michael, their political brand is, is screwed either way. I think they had to do this um, because I think fundamentally there would have been more market panic over the next couple of weeks, couple of months. And they would have potentially been booted out before the end of the year, which really would have been something. And I don't think any politician wants, wants that that um, accolade of potentially outdoing Bona Law as uh, the shortest-lived prime minister in uh, recent history. And, and, and Liz Truss gen genuinely was a candidate for that if they hadn't done a U-turn on the 45p tax, I think. One question that hasn't been answered is this. Whose idea was it to cut the 45p rate of tax in the first place? So on Sunday, Truss was clear it wasn't her. Did you discuss scrapping the top rate with your whole cabinet? No. Do no, we didn't. It was a decision that um, the Chancellor made. It was a decision that the Chancellor made. I should say, apparently it's quite normal not to tell the whole cabinet when it's this surprise announcement in the budget, because otherwise it's going to leak. But it was, it was clear she didn't say me and Kwasi Kwarteng decided it. She said Kwarteng decided it. However, by this morning, Kwarteng was saying that Truss agreed to the cuts. This is the Chancellor on BBC Radio 4's Today programme. The Prime Minister said yesterday it was a decision the Chancellor made mm. to abolish the 45p rate. Does mm. she mean it was your decision and not hers? Well, what she meant, of course, was that uh, historically in this country, the Chancellor of the Exchequer is responsible for public finance. Did she agree so to every the budget, policy before so you every budget, every budget uh, is essentially uh, done in the name of the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Of course, but did she, full, did she agree to it before she... And I take full responsibility for that. Did the Prime Minister agree to the policy before you announced it? We, of course we agree. We, we agree on, on, on all... I'm not asking you whether you now agree. I'm asking you, did you get her backing for the 45p tax? Of course, of course. You we did. work as part of the same government. There was then an interesting twist. Just before Kwarteng went on Radio 4, The Guardian's Pippa Krarat tweeted this. Tory insiders claimed that it was, in fact, Treasury Chief Secretary Chris Philp who had the idea to cut the 45p tax rate, presenting Truss and Kwarteng with a paper on it during leadership campaign. And then soon Chris Philp, rather than Trust or Kwarteng, became the story. Here he is on Sky News. Was it your idea? I would not describe it as my idea, no. Um, but we discussed lots of ideas. I discussed those ideas. I was asked to analyse different ideas. Um, we discussed dozens of dozens, dozens of different things. They were discussed with me, with lots and lots of other people, uh, members of parliament and other people as well. Uh, we put together the growth plan uh, which will get our economy growing. It will see wages rising and it will okay, see a sustainable tax-based development. Mr. Philp, did you fund present public services? Well, it's an important did you point. Present, did you present Ms. Truss and uh, Mr. Kwarteng with a paper 
suggesting that this is what would happen if there was a cut from 45p to 40p. Okay, Kay, I did not produce a paper specifically on this measure. We discussed lots and lots of different ideas. Kay, I think I've, I've... Said as much as I want to say about this. Lots and lots of different ideas were discussed. I'm sure that's by lots the case, of different people. but nevertheless, it's my job to press people. you on it. And my question is, as part of the paper, as part of a work, as part of a body of work that was given to them during the election campaign, did you suggest in writing that this could be a good idea? I'm not going to go any further into discussion, so private discussions that were held over the summer. I'm not I've said as much as I want to say about this. You know, there were widespread discussions involving me, involving other people, involving dozens of different ideas, uh, and, you know, decisions ultimately um, get made by the Chancellor and by the Prime Minister, listening to a lot of different people. It was your idea, wasn't it? Aaron, it's quite a pathetic scene, really, isn't it? You've got the, you know, the three most important people when it comes to the British economy. So the Prime Minister who makes the final decisions, the Chancellor, who is the top job in the Treasury, and then the Chief secretary to the treasury who is you know the second top job in the treasury and they're all pointing fingers at each other saying oh no it was his idea no it was his idea no it was her idea like it, it just it's pathetic isn't it Four words michael rats in a sack <laughs> um this is again really it's really unusual right you're the chance of the exchequer and you're blaming something on on somebody who was actually fundamentally yes the second in charge of the treasury fundamentally a very junior person in any government they're not going to be a household name chris felt um, and, and I wonder, like, look, yes, it's the job of people like him to give you a suite of policy proposals. That's what you do in leadership elections. And I'm sure if you had a leadership election in Labour with a left-wing candidate, people should absolutely engage in blue-sky thinking. But the whole point of being a politician is you choose which ones you think are best suited to address certain problems and ones which won't make you deeply unpopular. And in the case of Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng, Things that won't, you know, literally collapse British pension funds within 48 hours of being released to the wider public. So the buck has to stop there. And, and I really do believe that. And by the way, I said that continuously about Labour with Jeremy Corbyn at the helm. Ultimately, mistakes made by people beneath him, ultimately, they have to reside with him. None of those mistakes were in any way reminiscent of what we're presently seeing. And again, it, it does just feel fundamentally different, the usual kind of scandals. Because, of course, we've had bad budgets before. This wasn't a budget, it was a mini-budget, hence we didn't get the OBR. We've had bad budgets before. There was the pasty tax from George Osborne. You had Philip Hammond, remember him? Have to row back on certain uh, promises in the budget within a, within a few days, I think, maybe even a week. McDonald has his opposite number. So you do get these kind of big set pieces from the Chancellor, and sometimes things go badly wrong. But this is a whole other level. We've never seen a response like this before. And I think the fact they are pointing fingers at Chris Felt tokens just how significant it is this time. And do you think anyone's going to have to fall on their sword? Do you think Liz Truss is going to get ousted before a general election? Will she sack Kwasi Kwarteng? Will they both just say it was Chris Philp's fault and kick him out of the job? Your guess is as good as mine, Michael. I mean, political clairvoyance is always a fool's errand, but I think particularly if, you know, we're not, we're not Tory pundits, we're not inside with the 1922 committee. We don't go drinking with the... Uh, Harry Cole and uh, the assorted lobby journalists who those people have in their back pocket. We can make an educated guess, which is at present, yes. I mean, the Tories would collapse in a general election if they were led by Liz Truss. What I find really interesting is, of course, the Tories have this awesome machine when it comes to general elections. Awesome machine. They hire world-class people, the best of the best, often very unlike Labour, right? Whether that's with digital campaigns, whether it's with public speaking, 
everything you can imagine. Fundraising, they get the best of the best of the best. And I can see how Linton Crosby goes into a general election, of course, helps bring that polling lead Labour presently have down. He can, you know, he can eat into it. But when you're looking at polling leads right now, 25 with two pollsters today, I believe, 33 recently with YouGov, you know, 20 to 35 is a, is a, is a pretty big bridge to gap. So I would be very worried if I was a Conservative MP. Best bet is Rishi Sunak. Always was, if you're trying to play it safe. I never thought they would win a general election with Sunak because I think he's been too closely tied and implicated in with Boris Johnson's failures. And of course, you know, until quite recently, the big story was Cakegate. And he was implicated in that, although I think that was somewhat overstated. I think you agree on that as well, Michael. But Sunak was their best bet. And if you wanted to take a punt on somebody else, it was probably it was probably uh, Fence Secretary or, or Penny Mordaunt. But Sunak was the, was the safe bet. That's what Tory MPs thought. That's why the majority of them went with him. And I think they probably still feel the same, if not more so. And so given that he commanded a majority of his colleagues in Parliament before all this happened, if you had to sort of put a name in the hat and say, this will be an interim prime minister who can steady the ship, calm the markets, satisfy the Tory base, has national name recognition, can actually at least put tiptoes onto Keir Starmer's territory in the centre. I mean, I don't think he can. I think that the, the, the Tories as a party are a right-wing basket case. But let's just, let's just play that sort of rhetorical game that the media would mobilise were that, were that to be the kind of um, competition, Sunak versus Starmer you can see how they avoid complete catastrophe. And right now, I think that's what they should be aiming for. Two years away, anything can change, of course. But uh, first, first principle here, first step would be, how do we ensure we don't see something like a 1997 defeat? Because, Michael, in 1997, Labour only beat the Tories by, I think, 11, 12 points in the polls. Well, now we're looking at polling leads of 2033. So, it would be something far beyond what Labour enjoyed in 1997, without seats from Scotland, by the way. That's, that tells you the, the extent of the problem in England for the Conservative Party before mortgage rates go up, before the winters even arrive. So if they were smart, they would get rid of them. But then if they were smart, trust wouldn't have made the final two in the first place. So who knows? Yeah, I, I don't think they can go into the next general election with both of them, because... Obviously, I'm talking about Quarting and Trust now. I think Philp's obviously in, in irrelevance. I think if they sack him, it will just make them look even more pathetic. But I've, I don't think they can go into an election with both of them because people remember the fact that they announced this budget and then three days later, their mortgages got way more expensive. I, I just don't see how you can recover from that. And I think, as you say, neither of us are a conservative commentator. We don't have connections in the Tory party. But from what I've read, and it also makes a lot of sense, if there was to be a, a challenge to to Liz Truss, it would only happen once Conservative MPs had worked out how to get two people on a shortlist and then for one of them to drop out, a bit like Andrea Leadsom did when she was against Theresa May, because they don't want to put this back to the members. They want the next person to be anointed very quickly, because obviously the public aren't going to take kindly to another three-month leadership contest where another idiot gets selected. Let's move on to our next story. Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva has won the first round of Brazil's presidential election. The former president took 48% of the vote. That's 5 million more than his main opponent. That's the far-right incumbent, Jair Bolsonaro, who received 43%. The remaining candidates will now be eliminated, with Lula and Bolsonaro facing a runoff on October 30th. That first round result is a victory for the Brazilian left, although it was narrower than most had expected. 
Polls had predicted that Lula would win at least 50% of the popular vote, which would have won him the election outright. As president of Brazil between 2003 and 2010, Lula increased the minimum wage well above inflation and began to reverse Brazil's entrenched economic inequality. And he ran his 2022 campaign on that record. The country I left is a country that people miss. It was a country of employment. It was a country where people had the right to live with dignity, with their heads up. And this country will come back. In 2017, Lula was jailed on corruption charges, but leaked telegram messages in 2019 show that the judge in the case had secretly colluded with the lead prosecutor during the trial. Lula's convictions were overturned last year, paving the way for him to re-enter politics. Lula's opponent is Jair Bolsonaro, who was elected president in 2018. Under his leadership, Brazil had the world's second highest COVID death toll. He's encouraged deforestation of the Amazon, and he's failed to bring about the economic revival he promised. Bolsonaro is also a fan of Brazil's 21-year military dictatorship. And when speaking of possible defeat in this election, he said, quote, only God will remove me. That led to early concerns of a possible coup attempt. If we have to fight against Lula's gang, we will fight. And I repeat, armed people will never be enslaved. Joana Ramiro has been covering the Brazilian presidential election for Navarra Media and joins me now from Sao Paulo. Lula came first in these elections, but when I look on Twitter today, I see a lot of disappointed leftists. Lots of people seem very, very concerned about these these results. Can you explain that? Is, was it just that expectations were too high or what's worrying about these election results? So yes, there is definitely a dampening of the mood uh, between yesterday and today. And it's in great part because, yes, a lot of the left expected a first round victory uh, for Lula, even if with a, a very tight margin, that was always expected, but not Perhaps not necessarily Lula's result being the 48%, but Bolsonaro's result being 43, being so high up. You know, um, the latest polls in the week before the election were around the 36, 38 mark. So, you know, he did definitely do much better than expected. Now, the real concern here for a lot of Brazilians, besides the presidential elections, which will obviously have a second round, is the state of the Senate as it stands. So um, Brazil has a Congress with an upper house being the Senate and a lower house being the Assembly of Deputies, of federal deputies. Um, and in the Senate, which is a one state, one senator kind of system, there are a lot of Bolsonaristas or members of Bolsonaro's current party, the PL, the Liberal Party, that got elected last night. So that is one of the things that is really quite upsetting. But the other and the important bit to take from this is that a non-victory on the first round means that the right, and in particular the far right in this country, now has another 30 days or four weeks, really, to continue galvanizing, continue creating momentum. And for all the claims about the potential of electoral fraud, the potential of armed insurrection from the Bolsonaro uh, flank, will continue gaining space to reproduce. And the far right will be able to reorganize itself. But I also think it should be mentioned that it isn't just the rank and file or people who support Bolsonaro who now have four weeks to reorganize. It is also capital interest, big business in Brazil that now has four weeks to decide whether, much like in the last few weeks before the election has happened, Lula is, after all, the more convincing candidate for it. Or if, rather, given the results from last night, 
Bolsonaro is still fit to govern and the person who big business in Brazil will end up rallying behind just before the 30th of October when the second round of presidential elections comes around. Lula is often, you know, thought of as a very left-wing leader. As far as I understand, he's sort of putting forward as his vice presidential candidate, actually very much a centrist. He wants to reassure the markets. Is What's the dividing line between them when it comes to the economy? There's a couple of things here that should be divided between what is campaigning rhetoric and what is being offered to big business in Brazil. In terms of the demands of the PT, the Workers' Party, Lula's party, you have as a main demand to end hunger in Brazil. In the process of the last five, six years, you've seen a lot of Brazilians go back on the poverty line and actually go hungry again, which is something that the original Lula governments were able to end. They took Brazil out of the United Nations hunger map. And Brazil is back there. You have 33 million Brazilians estimatedly um, going hungry and a lot more people who can't afford to buy things like meat or dairy. So, you know, like quite important parts of a, a healthy diet. And so to end hunger and to end poverty has been one of the big campaign demands for Lula. On top of that, there's a question of employment and precarity, which in that little clip you showed with Lula speaking, it are two of the topics that he mentions. Now, these are the things he's offering the population, the average voter. Uh, there's been a deterioration in quality of life in Brazil over the last 10 years, massive inflation. He's promising to end all that by creating social investment. What he is offering to the business class, however, to continue um, employing, continue investing, continue expanding, perhaps privatizing some spaces. He is definitely, Lula, that is, is definitely signaling to the center and even to the center right in order to be able to beat Bolsonaro. His current electoral coalition, let's call it, has 10 different parties within it. That's double as many as he originally, back in 2002, got elected on. Brazil is infamously known for having to negotiate, Brazilian candidates having to negotiate with the center, the so-called centrão. And I feel Lula has gone a little bit beyond what is usually accepted as negotiating with centrão. He is now attempting to negotiate or de facto negotiating, politically speaking at least, with the center-right as well in order to beat Bolsonaro. And that might well be the key to this particular political dilemma. It's a question of whether big business, big money will accept that as good enough of an offer or not. And some of the responses I'm seeing to these results, again, I'm talking about on, online, is, is very similar to how people responded to the most recent presidential elections in the United States. So there you had Donald Trump. They say, this guy was so incompetent. He was so useless. He was such an embarrassment. And he still got in the 40s. You know, still millions and millions of people voted for this guy. Now, I'm seeing lots of similar things said about Bolsonaro. And I don't know what you think of that comparison. And I suppose also on a broader level, why is Bolsonaro still reasonably popular? Why has he, has he managed to score in the, in the mid-40s instead of in the 30s, as some of the polls predicted? I think it's a decent comparison in as much as the US and Brazil are different countries and therefore the uh, you know, comparison will never be particularly you know, fully accurate. But it is a good way for us, particularly in the UK, to understand um, what is happening in Brazil. Its support, however, I think it comes a lot from, in part, a certain mentality, very conservative, religious, traditionalist mentality that is still very normal, very prevalent in this country. I mean, the ills of humanity in this country live alongside the very best. You know, you have a country that, as you yourself mentioned, Michael, lived 21 years in dictatorship. That dictatorship, military dictatorship, that had millions of people disappeared, tortured and murdered 
only ended in 85, 85, it's less than 40 years ago. So, you know, a lot of people who are involved with uh, that system are still around. A lot of people who supported that system, who benefited from that system are still very much around. So, you know, mentalities are hard to change. And there is a lot of disparity in this country, both wealth, as well as racial, as well as community wise. It's a very, very big and very, very diverse country with big differentials from areas as well. You know, some states are particularly condensed in terms of population others very sparse obviously the amazon being an extremely good example but not only and so you know bolsonaro ends up appealing in that populist sense to all the fears and the hopes of some sort of progression within a smaller percentage of the population that obviously a lot of people think might apply to them even if in practice it might not and so yeah basically that is what what happens you have a country that a little bit like the u.s has big metropoles in which at the very center, there is a pr progressive uh, constituency. You see the cities of the inner cities of Sao Paulo and Rio voting for Lula very heavily. And then it's peripheries, you know, outside the inland, as they call it here, the interior, um, voting for Bolsonaro. Rio is a particularly interesting context because in terms of its other uh, executive structures and legislative structures, it has elected quite a reactionary forces, really. So there is, there is stuff happening in Rio that have absolutely to do with its wealth divisions, you know, like that are a bit scary to look at close up. But if we look just at the presidential, yes, you have a country that is divided between urban centers, inland agricultural spaces and industrial spaces that are usually on the periphery. And you see, obviously, the votes going in that direction as well from progressive to more reactionary. Finally, um, it's a huge topic, so I'll, I'll ask you to try and be relatively brief. But in terms of what's at stake for the rest of the world, for people outside of Brazil, I think people will have at the forefront of their mind climate. Brazil, obviously home to 60% of the Amazon. As far as I understand it, Lula and Bolsonaro have very, very different approaches to that. So could I ask what the outcome when the second round does happen, what implications that will have for, for climate change? Well, massive, because... As far as the, I mean, climate change, human rights, you know, if Bolsonaro wins a second term, it's absolutely uh, predictable that he will continue its policy of deforestation. The Amazon of Garimpu, which is the, uh, you know, of basically facilitating effectively Garimpu, even though he argues otherwise, which is the um, illegal exploitation of minerals in, in the Amazon basin. So yes, in terms of climate change, it would be absolutely uh, tra an absolute travesty. It would be tragic, really. Um, and I think the wider world is aware of it. And the reason why a lot of International politicians, in particular Western part politicians, uh, over the last couple of years have been uh, looking so uh, dismissively, perhaps, at uh, at Bolsonaro, which to a degree uh, fans the flames of his claims that you know only he is a defensor of true Brazilian interests or something along those lines. Um, as far as other things are concerned, I think it is important to mention them because they go hand in hand with climate change and, and with sustainability is the question of human rights, of indigenous rights, of uh, black people's rights in this country that have been enormously affected by this truly reactionary uh, government of Bolsonaro, this truly reactionary administration. And so there is a massive fear that violence will escalate, that the ex still existing rights of these particular communities will be continuously uh, uh, hacked away. And that will end up in a very grim country, not too dissimilar 
in practice on the streets to the country that Brazilians lived in uh, about 37 years ago. Joana Romero in Sao Paulo, thank you so much for joining us this evening. We will, of course, be going back to that story now that there will be a second round. So we'll keep you posted on developments in that campaign. Moving back closer to home, Liz Truss's credibility is in tatters. Her chancellor's mini-budget crashed the pound and hiked interest rates, and pretty much everyone in the country thinks she's useless. So a 30-minute live TV interview was always going to be difficult. These were the most cringe-inducing parts. I do want to say to people, I understand their worries about what has happened this week, and I do, I do stand by the package we announced, and I stand by the, by the fact that we announced it quickly because we had to act. But I do accept we should have laid the ground better. But there are, I do there, accept that. You accept you and should I, have laid I, the ground better. And I have learned from that. I have learned from that. And I will make sure that in future we do a better job of laying the ground. Laying the ground, fine. You've acknowledged what there was a problem with communications. Mm-hmm. You should have explained things better. But I want to show our audience and you what actually happened, because this is not just a global problem. It's not arguably just a problem of communications. It's a problem of the consequence of the decision that you made. If we look at this graph, and you can look at it over there, Prime Minister, you can see what happened to the cost of government borrowing. On the Mm. day that you made that announcement, Mm. it spiked. And it didn't just spike. It's predicted to stay high for long. Now, the reason that matters is when it costs the government more to borrow, Everything costs more. Everybody feels the increase in interest rates, whether that's on government, on mortgages, on people's rents. This is a direct consequence of the decisions you made last week. And interest rate increases are going to mean pressure on people's mortgages and less money for public services. We have been in a very long period of low interest rates. And the fact is that due to the war in Ukraine perpetrated by Russia, interest rates are rising around the world. And we've seen that in the United States, and we've seen that in Europe. So I don't, I don't accept, week. Laura. I don't accept that part of your argument. Now, on the subject of government borrowing, well, well, I hang, think hang it on, is for, right. Forgive me, left trust. We'll come to that. We'll come to that in a second. But look on that graph. That is a spike in the cost of borrowing for the government, which feeds through to everybody else as a direct result of the decisions that you announced on September the 23rd. This is not about what was going on in the war in Ukraine already. We, we know that that's a huge challenge. But look at the direct result on that day. And the chief economist at the Bank of England. That is Hill, not the same as interest rates, though, Laura. But it so I think, I think the audience should be clear that that is not the same as interest rates, which through. are rightly set but, by the Independent Bank of England. That was Liz Truss trying to blame the Bank of England for people's interest rates going up. Laura Koonsberg was completely right in that situation. Now, the increase in interest the government pays on bonds feeds directly into mortgage costs. That's what Liz Truss wanted to deny. And those costs, those mortgage costs, went up immediately after Truss and Kwarteng's mini-budget. It wasn't the Bank of England. Everyone can see that. However fluent you are in economics. It also wasn't Vladimir Putin. You don't need to know much about that conflict to realize the timing didn't match up. Now we can go from dishonesty to delusion. But I'm absolutely committed 
to delivering great public services for people. That is very, very important. But that's not the same as saying that you'll make sure departments have enough money to combat inflation. That's not the same as saying you're not going to cut public spending. Well, I believe in outcomes rather than inputs. I believe in what people see and what people feel. So, for example, the health secretary mm -hmm. has committed that people will be able to see their GP within mm -hmm. two weeks. And that's what we're focused on. We're focused on how does it feel for a patient? You know, how does it feel for me as a woman walking down the street? Do I feel safe at night? Mm -hmm. Those are the things I'm thinking about as prime minister. And that's what we're focused on, delivering better public services. And, 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 and I think quite often, frankly, the debate focuses too much on the input and not enough on how it on actually feels for people. for people in Britain. Well, well, and they want public services that and, are focused on you know, delivering for them. Habits. I believe in outcomes, not inputs. And what does that mean? You, can't, you, you don't believe in either out, outcomes or inputs. We obviously all care about outcomes. That means the quality of care we get in the NHS or how safe we feel on the street. But the job of government isn't just to say, we want good things. I'm the prime minister and I say that the NHS is going to be good. No, you have to tell us how you're going to get it. That's when the inputs matter, right? And that, that, that involves funding it properly. Liz Truss is doing precisely the opposite. She's saying, oh yeah, the inputs is the funding. I'm cutting the inputs. But I'm still going to get good outputs. Why? Because I say so. It's, it's fantasy. It's fantasy land she's living in. And also what she's essentially asking the audience to do is trust me. I'm not going to show you how the sausage is made. I'm not going to show you how I'm going to dramatically improve services in the NHS. You just got to believe me. Now, one thing we are not in the mood to do at the moment, Liz, is believe you. Right? So if you're going to say that services are going to improve, you better show us how. Your currency and trust is not very high at the moment. So this just sounds like complete nonsense. Also, it's worth saying, I, I saw people saying today that Liz Truss is saying, you'll be able to see your GP within two weeks. I think under New Labour, the target was two days. The two weeks to see a GP is not particularly impressive. And that's her sort of reaching for the stars. I'm not going to show you how I'm going to do it. I'm just going to set this very, very dramatic target, which is to see your doctor in two weeks. Like what? Anyway, um, let's move on to another clip. And this is what many people considered to be Koonsberg's killer line. How many people voted for your plan? What do you mean by that? Sorry. Well, you've set out a significant change of direction mm -hmm. from the Conservative government that you were being part of for many, many years. But how many people voted for you to do that? Well, people in 2019 who voted Conservative voted for a successful country where we are levelling up all parts of the country and where we're driving growth, enterprise and opportunity. Now, any government has to deal with the circumstances it faces. And we face this situation of, you know, which was, was unforeseen, huge energy costs, rising inflation due to the war in Ukraine and the aftermath you, of COVID. But you know, but you know very we are well, Prime Minister, that there are a small number of people in the Conservative Party, tens of thousands, rather than the whole country, voted for you in the leadership contest, perfectly legitimately. But do you fear that you have put the country on a path that it didn't ask for because you believe very strongly that it will lead to growth. Finally, what happens if it doesn't work? Well, what people voted for in 2019, when they voted for con Conservative, sometimes for the first time <coughs> in many years, is they voted for a different future. They voted for investment into their towns and cities. They voted for higher wages. They voted for economic growth. And that is what our plan will deliver. I'm sorry, what, what do you mean? Uh, that, was a, 
a listless silence there. Uh, it was a good question, I thought, actually, from Laura Coonsberg, because obviously, you know, constitutionally, it is perfectly correct that Liz Truss was elected via the rules of the Conservative Party, and that means she is, you know, the legitimate Prime Minister, whatever. That's, that's how the rules do work. But if you are going to get into the job like that, then should you really be doing something as radical as what she is doing? And also, I mean, I think this is really important when it comes to how the markets have been behaving. We've been saying on this show sort of over and over again that, you know, if there were a left-wing government and the markets took a disliking to their budget, then we wouldn't say, oh, well, that's a reason to completely rewrite the budget. No, if, it, it's probably fine to piss off the market sometimes. If you're doing it to make the rich richer, it's a bit bizarre. It seems a bit self-defeating if that's what you're trying to do. But I've got no problem with that. But if you are going to do that, if you were going to sort of risk people's pensions, you better have a mandate to do it, right? Because you are, if you're having that, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't even make sense to say they're having a fight with the markets because they're trying to make rich people richer. But sort of in theory, if you were going to do risky things, you should have a democratic mandate and she does not have that. Perhaps more damaging though than anything Laura Koonsberg said was how Michael Gove responded to the interview. Michael Gove, what did you make of Liz Truss? Some really interesting nuggets in there. There certainly were. And I thought it was uh, right for the Prime Minister to acknowledge that um, the events of Friday, that fiscal event, need to be revisited. There need to be, uh, uh, there needs to be a recognition of mistakes. But I think that it's still the case that uh, on the basis of what the Prime Minister said, and she was very clear and authoritative, but it is still the case, I think, that there is uh, an inadequate realisation at the top of government of the scale of change required. So, yes, the energy package was the most important thing in the fiscal event, but broadly 35% of the, uh, the additional money that we're borrowing is not to cut energy costs. It is for unfunded tax cuts. And you sound concerned about that. I mean, profoundly. I, you're profoundly concerned. Yes, uh, because there are two things that are problematic, two major things that were problematic with the fiscal event. The first is the sheer risk of uh, using borrowed money to fund tax cuts. That is not conservative. And then the second thing is the decision to cut the 45 pence rate and indeed at the same time to change the law which governs how bankers are paid in the mm -hmm. city of London. Um, ultimately, at a time when people are suffering, and you are quite right to point out the concerns that people have, not just over mortgages, but over benefits. When you have additional billions of pounds in play, to have as your principal decision the headline tax move, cutting tax for the wealthiest. That is a display of the wrong values. Aaron, what did you make of Laura Koonsberg versus Liz Truss? Liz Truss had a uh, you know, difficult argument to make. Did she make it reasonably well? I thought she was doing okay, actually. And I would recommend people watch it and judge themselves because actually the response from Twitter often isn't remotely, I feel like I've not watched the same thing. Until that final question where she just looks utterly ridiculous. And even your impression, Michael, I don't think it quite did it justice. justice. You know, the hand gesture, it was so partridge-esque. It was remarkable. And I was like, oh my God, that's, the, that's all you need for the YouTube shorts, the Instagram reels, for TikTok, for the six o'clock news. That's all you need. The rest of the interview doesn't matter anymore. Uh, but she sounded confident. She, she didn't sound like a broken politician, right? Which actually I was a bit surprised at given the week she just had. And I, and I would push back a little bit, Michael, on that thing about inputs and outputs. I, I do think that politicians should focus on outcomes. If you're a business, you don't say, we're a really successful business. We've just purchased a new HQ. We've just hired 10,000 new staff. We're spending this much on training. We're doing this. We're doing that. Okay, well, what's up with your profit margins? 
oh, well, we don't need to talk about that because actually we judge success by all the, the inputs. I don't think anybody says that. And actually really successful businesses or any successful organization would say, actually, we've achieved this with while being very sort of austere and clever on the inputs. You know, pe- businesses don't say, oh, we've hired more people, ergo, we're more successful. So I sort of don't, I don't quite agree with you there. And I think politicians should focus on outcomes. I, d- I do want politicians to solve problems. And I would love a government to say, yeah, we're going to bring back seeing a GP within 48 hours, within 18 months. We don't know how we're going to do it yet, but we're going to do it. Come back to us, uh, you know, in two years' time at an election and judge us on that that thing we're going to focus on. I like that personally. So I'll push back a little bit on that. What I would say, Michael, is 24 million people in the last general election in 2019 voted for either Jeremy Corbyn, a radical social democrat, for Boris Johnson, who was offering leveling up one nation conservatism. 24 million people, right? The vast majority of the, of the electorate, obviously. And what we're getting instead now is austerity absolutely on a par with what we got with George Osborne after 2010. You know, the, the budget that he, the sort of the fiscal overview he offered in 2010 when they came into government, I think it was something like £80 billion worth of cuts over four years. And it was just over £80 billion. And what now is being touted is like 18.5 billion. So this is absolutely on a par with what George Osborne was saying. We're looking at Osbornean Cameronite austerity, which everybody had said was over. Austerity is over, is never coming back. We have 24 million people in a general election voting for nothing to do with austerity, either as leveling up or radical social democracy and public ownership. And yet we've got something completely different. And so I do think it is, it is absolutely unacceptable that they're embarking on this path. It's unacceptable. You know, I, I, often when people say, oh, well, the members chose the prime minister. Well, yeah, we have a party system. That's how our democracy works this country. We need PR. We need more political parties and more political parties with more members to give it more legitimacy. Sure. But that's just the system and that's how it works. But I think part of that bargain is when you come in like Liz Truss has or like Gordon Brown did or like Theresa May did or Boris Johnson, when you haven't won that mandate in election, it's absolutely unacceptable to deviate from the promises made by your predecessor to this extent. On the tax cuts, I disagree with Gove a bit in so much as even a Keynesian, even a left-wing economist would say, in a recession, which is what we're heading into, you shouldn't increase taxes. I don't, I don't agree with that necessarily. I think corporation tax should go up. Labour, for instance, had that position. You remember when uh, Rishi Sunak was saying they were going to increase corporation tax and initially Labour said, well, no, you shouldn't do that. That is a legitimate Keynesian position. So the idea that you shouldn't have taxes not going up, he was saying unfunded tax cuts. Well, it's not technically a tax cut because the, the taxes were, you know, that was going forward. They were going to put corporation tax from 19% to like, what, 24, 25%, but it hadn't happened yet. And so you're basically saying that policy, which is, you know, six months, a year ahead of us, I think that would have come in from April next year, the beginning of the financial year, that's now not going to happen. So that's not an uncosted tax cut. That's saying we're going into a recession. We probably shouldn't increase taxes. I don't personally agree with that. But I think it's important. At least that's a serious policy. I think it probably is important to disaggregate, for instance, freezing corporation tax, maybe even reducing personal basic rate of tax to 19p. I think it's probably important to disaggregate those, which are at least moderately serious policies in the context of recession. You can talk about them seriously. And then getting rid of the top rate of tax, which was just insane not just politically, which it was, but also economically, because it barely raises any money. And there's absolutely no reason to do it at all. 
but particularly when you're looking at a downturn. In a downturn, you want to use public finances to stimulate demand. Where's most demand coming from? Your average blue-collar worker, person earning the median wage, 30 grand a year, not from somebody on megabucks on 200 grand a year. I want to push back on a couple of those things. I suppose on the on the inputs outputs issue, I see what you're saying. If you're in a business meeting, you know, if you are speaking to your shareholders and you're giving them a review of the past two or five years, you're not going to say, "Oh, I hired this many people, I did this many internal reforms." You're going to say, "Profits are this high, so you should be happy with me." But that's when you're talking about the past. If you're talking about the future, you kind of got to show us how you're getting there, and especially if your actions look like they're going to take you in the opposite direction. So if you're saying, look, I'm going to cut these services, but don't worry about that. So I'm going to cut the funding for these services, but don't worry about that because all I care about is outcomes. Then what are we supposed to do? Just believe her? Because I feel like she probably does owe it to us to tell us a little bit about the mechanism of how she's going to get there, especially if her actions look like they're going in the opposite direction. I think the same would apply in a, in a business. Yes, but I want, as, a, as a principle, Michael, I want politicians to be judged on outcomes. I don't want somebody saying, he's a radical social democrat. He just They just spent an extra £10 million on the NHS. Or where's it all going into? Probably healthcare providers and PFI projects. I prefer the £5 billion done in a, more, you know, in a way that's more congruent public ownership. So I don't, I just, I don't, I just, it doesn't sit well with me. Uh, yes, of course, you, any business, Michael, if you're going to shareholders and you're saying, I want to be judged on profit, that's what they say. I want to be judged on outcomes. They don't say, shareholders, we've had a wonderful year. We hired 50,000 new people. They don't say that. So I agree with you. By the way, Liz Truss is awful and she's not going to achieve the outcomes. I'm sure we agree on that, Michael. But as a principle, I, I, I think it is strange to judge people on the inputs. And by the way, in this country, actually, we could do a damn sight better than we do without spending any money. As you gradually, we could move funding away, for instance, from housing benefit, which is a landlord subsidy, towards building social housing. Actually, that's a misallocation of funds. You do it gradually, of course, but the, you know you wouldn't need to spend extraordinary amounts of money to actually achieve quite a lot. Or, or with regards to procurement, rolling out the Preston model across the whole country, that wouldn't really cost anything in terms of central government funding. So I would rather focus, yes, on the outputs rather than the inputs. I think if, I think if you've got shareholders and you've got a new boss who is very difficult to remove and they're doing something which looks like it's going to radically lower profits or put you in debt and they're not just going to accept, oh, I believe in outputs. But anyway, this is slightly semantic. I want to now briefly just go on to the tax cuts thing. So I suppose you're saying it's not completely unreasonable just to cut taxes if you're going into a recession. I suppose what that ignores is that this isn't a recession that's necessarily because of a lack of demand. It's a recession because of increased prices. And one way to respond to increased prices is to share the load, right? So if you've got a massive increase in energy costs, then the issue isn't so much that we're going into a recession because of reduced demand. It's that we're going into a recession because of these increased costs and we need to share the load. So you share the load. If, if what you've got is high inflation and lots of poverty, then you probably do need to have a solidarity tax on, on rich people so that you can help poor people deal with these increased costs without sending inflation out of control. So that's why I'd say, I mean, I kind of agree with Michael Gove on this one. Oh, no, I do. Michael, look, I want a much higher rate of corporation tax. Also, corporation tax has this wonderful effect of incentivizing investment because, of course, that means, you know, you, you pay less towards tax because... You have this disincentive to accumulate all these profits, and so you put more in investing in the business. It has this very important ancillary effect. So I'm not suggesting for a minute, oh, we shouldn't put up corporation tax. What I'm saying is, for an orthodox centre-right government, which wants to be popular and wants to look economically credible, I could see George Osborne doing that. I could see Ken Clark saying that. 
I could see Rishi Sunak saying that, although he's done something very different. I actually think Rishi Sunak was all over the place too as well, Michael, because you had for a year the Tories talking about we're going to put up national insurance. And actually, for pretty much everyone under 55 grand a year, their national insurance went down because thresholds change. Meanwhile, Joe Public thinks that actually they've gone up. A complete catastrophe. And that precedes trust. Very important to say the messaging on tax and who gets what. But all I'm saying is, Michael, I think this policy on the top rate of tax is a little bit different to those other ones, because you could see how a centre-right mainstream politician in a crisis would perhaps pursue those policies. And look, they could have, for instance, done what they've done on energy intervention. They could have reduced the basic rate of tax by 1p. They could have just done those two measures, right? And that would have been really popular. And they could have said, this is a conservative budget. Um, we're looking out for the working person. The VAT changes too, maybe, right? But it's, it's the change, particularly with corporation tax, although I still think that's a much more legitimate policy than the top rate of tax. With corporation tax and the top rate of tax, you just think you couldn't say no to the IA, could you? You just couldn't say no to them. And I think that's such an important thing in politics. When you're on the left as well, right? If you're a left-wing political leader, the ability to say no to your own base, and they're demanding something. Because look, ultimately, you need other people's votes as well. And I find it remarkable that the Conservative Party, this election-winning machine, the most successful political entity in European history, in many ways, I mean, I'm not going to include, you know, the Icelandic Nationalist Party or whatever, you know, been in power basically constantly since 1930. Of all the major political parties on this continent, the British Conservative Party is the most successful. And I, I find it incredible that they allow themselves to have their defining political crowning moment, both Truss and Kwarteng, to be determined by the likes of the IEA and the Taxpayers Alliance. I find it remarkable. It's almost as if, you know, the electorate was just 30 bespectacled, suited, right-wing policy wonks, rather than actually people who have to pay bills. And, you know, and, and sometimes they go to the ATM and there's no money in there or they're overdrawn. I find it remarkable. I really do. I wonder, are there any sort of voices in the Truss cabinet conciliary, you know, uh, advisors who at least can inject a little bit of wisdom into these discussions, even from their response today from Kwarteng, from Truss? I don't think so. I don't think so. And so to conclude, well, people say, well, it's two years out from a general election. This is the bottom for the Tories. Okay, Labour in some polls are 25 ahead, 30 ahead, 33 ahead, but the Tories can make it back. Well, if your judgment is so poor that you find yourself 33 points behind after less than a month in the top job, what's not to say it can't get worse? I mean, you've patently got quite poor political judgment. Let's go to our last story. This was Nadine Doris speaking back in July. Morning. So I think you're here to tell us which candidate you're going to be backing. Well, I'm going to be backing Liz Truss. I've sat with Liz in Cabinet now for some time. Uh, I'm very aware that she's probably a stronger Brexiteer than both of us. She has consistently argued for low-tax policies. And I'm particularly concerned about the 14 million people who voted for a manifesto and voted for a government, that the candidate that we select, and uh, for me it's, it's Liz who I'm going to back, will continue with those manifesto promises and will continue to deliver for the government and for the Conservative Party moving forward. That was July. This is Nadine now. So she tweeted, Widespread dismay at the fact that three years of work has effectively been put on hold. No one asked for this. 
Channel 4 sale, online safety, BBC licence fee review, all signed off by Cabinet, all ready to go and all stopped. If Liz wants a whole new mandate, she must take to the country. I like BBC licence fee review. And she was clearly very, very angry when she was bashing out that tweet. Of course, it's worth noting, Nadine is right on one thing. There should be a general election. Liz Truss has no mandate for what she's doing. She is completely wrong on everything else in that tweet. Uh, There's a great response to this from Leo Watkins, who's a media and communications academic. So he wrote, No one asked for this. Neither the privatisation of Channel 4 nor the end of the TV licence fee were in the 2019 Tory manifesto. And the consultation on Channel 4 saw about 95% of responses opposed to it. Even Tory voters are against it. So the thing that Nadine Doris is critiquing Liz Truss for, for dumping her unpopular policies, you know, she's saying, you have no mandate. Nadine had no mandate to do this. Neither does, you know, Liz has as much mandate to dump them as Nadine Doris had to push them through in the first place. The serious issue, though, here, Aaron, a general election. Nadine Doris, she was a big backer of Liz Truss. She is now already saying, let's have a general election. I mean, what what do you make of that? How seriously should we take this? (sighs) Do you want a general election, Michael? Do I want one? Yeah, go on. I'm ready for one. Do you? I just feel like this isn't stopping. You know, I, I genuinely thought in 2019, we'd had this incredible period of, like, political volatility in this country from, say, 2015 or 2014, even, maybe, the Scottish independence referendum, but 2015 through to 2019. And I thought, I did think that was the end of it. I mean, I didn't want it to be the end of it, right? I wanted a Labour government in 2019. But I did feel like it was conclusively the end of it. And it's not. It's not. And things just get more and more chaotic. And so, of course, I want a general election. I don't want a Tory government. But I do wonder, you know, what would come out of that? And and would that be more chaotic? I I mean, it seems quite plausible. Is that, you know, is that necessarily the answer to everything? I don't know. And I also would want a Labour government led by Starmer, that's what's happening right now, to actually have ironed out a few more policies than it presently does. I wouldn't be particularly confident in them having a transformational agenda for government right now. I mean, hopefully that will be a little bit more worked out in 18 months' time. So, I mean, yeah. Imagine if we had a general election and there was, I mean, there wouldn't be a hung parliament, Labour would absolutely smash it. But if you had these circumstances in a hung parliament, then things would be even worse, yes. We have had, at least, from Johnson and Trust, I mean, this is the irony of all of it, Michael, two of the biggest post-war fiscal interventions in regards to the furlough scheme and now this energy intervention from the Trust government. Incredible. Just, you know, free market sort of right-wing conservatives, even when they want to have less state, they just can't do it right now. That's a whole other conversation. Because the moment we live in, because of geopolitics, the climate crisis, inequality, and the political pressures that creates, you can't do it anymore. Particularly in Britain, where we've no longer got North Sea oil. Uh, so trying to imitate the 1980s is a fool's errand. But I don't know, Michael. The general election, yes, it would be good. You'd get a Labour government coming in. You'd have Rachel Reeves in number 11. You would still have a fiscal, uh, a sovereign debt crisis. You'd still have rising costs of borrowing. You would still have international markets and big banks basically saying to Labour, you have to impose austerity. That's what would happen. I do kind of worry, actually, sometimes people think the fundamentals are being determined by 10 Downing Street and the government of the day. No, the fundamentals are we're a low productivity, low growth economy. And actually, under this paradigm, things aren't going to get better for most people for quite a while. I don't mean that to be depressing. I mean, that should actually spur us to have a a much more ambitious kind of objective in mind. I do, at the moment, think that Labour would broadly govern like the Tories. Somewhat better, obviously. They certainly wouldn't be doing what we saw last week with regards to precipitating a 
uh, the collapse of domestic pension funds and a you know the declining pound sterling. But I think we need we need more than that. Let's wrap up on that note. Nice expansive answer to end with. Aaron, thank you. Always a pleasure. Michael, my pleasure. I don't know if I'm joining you again Friday. It's great to fill in for Ash. I do love our Friday shows though, Michael. They're quite sacred to me. It's quite an important part of my week. On Wednesday, Liz Truss will be making her Tory party conference speech um, and we'll definitely be covering that. So do come back then at 7pm. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.